The MLB was back in London over the weekend, and Commissioner Rob Manfred saying maybe it was not his best decision, giving Astros players immunity during the investigation of the 2017 sign-stealing scandal. Why is this coming out now? Plus a look back at an eventful week in baseball. Chris Stapps, Porzingis, and CP3 are on the move to title contenders, while Victor Wembanyama is loving San Antonio, as I'll get into all that's happening in the association. Is Connor Bedard the NHL's next generational star? And when was the last time you had two big players in both the NBA and NHL drafted in the same year? Any concerns for Miami regarding Tyreek Hill's latest allegations? A former Steeler from the Super Bowl 40 team has passed away as I look back on a play he was involved in that marred the possible outcome of the game. Your favorite little podcast host is back from a brief getaway in the Caribbean, as I'll share a nugget or two on that. It's all coming up, but first, this message. J Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the J Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there. Whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review. I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. It's the final week of June. Wasn't June 1st just yesterday? How about January 1st? As 2023 is zooming right past us as if we're standing still. Well, all I can say is that I'm glad you've taken a few precious moments out of your day and staying present as I share what's on my mind and what seems to be a pretty sparse sports universe as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even as early as this past Monday, not even Thursday because yours truly was not on the airwaves over the past few days. But nevertheless, I'm glad you're here. And I know a week from now, quite a bit will be percolating with the NBA and NHL free agency. That starts on Saturday the 1st. The NHL draft is this Wednesday, where sensation Connor Bedard will be selected number one. Just six days after Victor Wembanyama was chosen by the San Antonio Spurs. And how these two players can be linked forever, I'll explain later on. The NFL will lay low until late next month, but there are a couple of newsworthy items to discuss. Wimbledon will kick off this coming Sunday. As we've entered that stretch, I guess over the last week to 10 days where it's been relatively quiet, low-key for the most part, but sadly, my good people, even with those things that may be on the horizon, we've officially entered the Sports Dead Zone Part 2. 
If you recall, right after the Super Bowl, and I would say to March Madness, but really to the baseball season, that dead zone, even with the NHL, NBA, and college basketball, really starting to pick up as you head into the tournament. To me, that is the sports dead zone part one. But once we get past this, and even when we get deeper into the month of July, where training camps will open up just less than a month from now, if you can believe that, and then into the dog days of August with baseball, and then obviously everything that's going to transpire with the college football, and of course the exhibition season for the NFL leading into September, and then from that point through the end of the year, it's going to be nonstop. So right now there's going to be that lull, there's going to be some quiet time, yes there's going to be things here and there, and of course with the day-to-day grind of a baseball season, obviously there's a lot to get into there, but overall, over the course of, I would say, maybe the next six to eight weeks, Although you're going to have some things popping up, especially with the free agency stuff, because you always know there's going to be rumors, there's going to be trades, a bunch of those different things. But for the most part, the sports universe is going to be rather quiet. And before I even get to baseball, because that's where I'm going to start off, I understand you got Victor Wembanyama. I'm sure people want to talk about that. And I discussed him and not to say that I have the big giant crystal ball in front of me to see how his career is going to go. And I hope he becomes an all-time great. Let's... Him get to the top 10, maybe even Mount Rushmore when it's all said and done. But that's not for another two decades to even think about, let alone discuss. But yes, we'll touch on all that later on, even Connor Bedard, NFL. But before I even get to the baseball, I came back last night from a five-day sojourn in Grand Cayman. That's in the Cayman Islands. That is south and a little bit west of Cuba. And it was five days that... I rejoiced, I unplugged, I disconnected, it was cloudy the first three days, the last two days were hot and sunny, and that sun is as unforgiving as I could ever remember. Now granted, I've been to Puerto Rico a couple times in the last year or so, yeah, going back to last June, so yeah, about a year. Also, living in Florida for a time, going back decades ago, but with the heat humidity and just that boiling sun boy you kind of forget how hot it is and even my honeymoon for those who recall if you go back that far with me when I went to Aruba in October 2021 that sun was also just oppressive and for yours truly I'm not going to complain if anybody knows I love the summertime I love the heat I'll never complain how hot it is how humid etc but boy was that sun just beating down on myself my wife Two friends of my wife's who are beautiful people, Brandy and Sarah. So I want to thank them for having me hop on board with them. Somewhat of a girl's trip, plus one being the lone guy. But uh, it was a great trip. Not a lot that we did as far as excursions or things of that nature. This was literally from beach to the Airbnb and back, which was literally across the street from where we were staying in the West Bay part of Grand Cayman, north of Seven Mile Beach, just a smidge north of that, went into some very good restaurants, and for people who do or do not know, I eat plant-based, so it was a little bit of a challenge at times, although a lot of the menus have expanded to where you could have those type of options, but there were times where I was just eating rice and beans, but I'm happy as a lark, yours truly, so I didn't even bat an eyelash, but as far as the alcohol consumption, and not to say that I could put people under the table by any stretch, that's not the case, but I will say this, I will not look at a drink for about another month, because with all the rum punches and the sweet drinks, and yes, they go down smooth, but boy, they do not sit in your stomach well, 
And that's not an indictment on the establishments and their bartenders, etc. But when you have three or four a day, on average, spread out between lunch, dinner, etc. Yeah, it's becomes a little bit too much. So thankfully, I'm back in the New York groove, ready to pump out this podcast and get it edited, packaged, so all the guys and gals could listen to what I've missed out here on the last week in sports. But of course, you know, I kept myself in tune, obviously, with what's going on. And here's what we got as I get into that. Let me see, did I miss anything? I just want to make sure I got everything. Nah, I pretty much summed up everything when it comes to the trip. Grand Cayman, I would definitely recommend it. If you just want to have some R&R, go to the beach, relax. If you don't want to do as much as far as excursions, yes, you could do stingrays. That's not my cup of tea or turtles or anything like that. And we're pretty much on the west side of the island. But yes, if you just want to really unplug and really just get away from it all, that's a good spot to go to. Plenty of beaches, Seven Mile beaches, I believe world-renowned, or at least in the Caribbean, so definitely give that a look upon your next getaway, whether it's just for three, four days, long weekend, or even a week. And I know they have a big carnival coming up, so I'm sure that place is going to be on and popping there starting, I would think, Wednesday leading into the weekend and obviously the 4th of July, which of course they don't celebrate there, but obviously for those here in the United States who are probably flocking to that part of the Caribbean or that part of the world, it is going to be one that I'm sure it's nonstop and a buzz throughout the course of this next week. But let's put all that aside. Let's get to some sports. And first off, I want to talk Major League Baseball since that's the only sport standing right now. And I'll talk about Rob Manfred in a minute. The first thing I want to get to is the London series, which took place. And no, I did not watch an inning. Yes, I did watch highlights. I know it was a split. Cubs win 9-1. And then Marcus Stroman, who actually left the game yesterday with a blister in a Cub loss. And that's one that a lot of people are going to have their antenna raised very high because Stroman is probably at the top or near the top when it comes to the trade deadline, which will take place a month from, I believe it's the 29th, I want to say off the top of my head. I think it's early this year. It's not usually the 31st of July when it comes to the deadline. But that's one that a lot of teams are going to monitor to see whether or not his blister or maybe even his health overall. Now, again, he got pulled because of that blister, and who knows if that's going to crop up again, not only throughout the course of this next month and with the deadline approaching, teams may be scared off by that because they're going to need a guy down the stretch who's going to provide not only a lot of innings, but a lot of guts on the mound and try to put themselves in a position to where they could get one of these six seeds, whether in the AL or NL, in October for a quest as I like to say, the hunt for Red October when it comes to winning a World Series championship. So, to me, the games in London, they're neither here nor there. The only reason why I bring it up is because next year the Mets will be there as a big Mets fan. Mets and Phillies for the two days. And I don't understand why MLB's doing this. I don't know if this is because they have that feeling, a la the NFL, to kind of bring these games overseas to get the folk out in London a taste of what baseball is like and as you saw by the crowds yes they were packed a lot of Cardinal fans a lot of Cub fans and of course you can have the popular teams that are going to go there you remember Yankees Red Sox were there a couple of years back I believe prior to the pandemic or maybe it was 21 I don't recall maybe it was prior to the pandemic in 19 and that was a hit and you're going to have those rivals or those teams that are going to make their mark abroad and not have the team like just throwing them out there. You're not going to have Pirates playing the Royals in a London series. 
you're not going to have that. You're going to have the sports most popular teams play there. And of course, with the Mets and Phillies, them being the rivals right up and down the turnpike. And of course, I'll get to the Mets in that series as they played over the weekend themselves. But I don't see why that's the case. Who knows if this is going to have any type of legs down the road, whether this is going to be an annual thing. I don't know if they're doing this over the course of the next five years. I didn't really get a good take or temperature going back to the Yankee Red Sox London series on whether or not Major League Baseball is going to do this over the course of the next half decade or maybe decade. Who knows? Maybe they're still taking the temperature to see how popular this series has been. But based on what we saw there yesterday, or really over the weekend, I should say, Ian Happ had the two home runs and a 9-1 laugher there on Saturday. But again, it is Cardinals-Cubs, so a lot of people are going to be drawn to that, especially in that part of the country. And then yesterday, even with the likes of Marcus Stroman having to leave early because of that blister, the Cardinals were able to prevail and win 7-5. Now let me get to this Rob Manfred story that came out during the week about him having some, I guess, regret is more like it. I don't even know if he apologized. When I looked at the story, I just rolled my eyes and said, oh, really? This is going to come out now? Where the commissioner of Major League Baseball, again, Rob Manfred, came out and stated that it was probably not in his best decision to have the Astros gain immunity throughout the investigation a few years back. Of course, dating to the 2017 sign-stealing scandal throughout that postseason and, of course, culminating in an Astro World Series victory. And I don't understand why this has to come out now. Just when we put to bed that whole saga. And I understand it's been years since we put it away. But I get it. Whether you're a Yankee fan or even a Dodger fan. That still has the scars. Just knowing that your team possibly could have had a chance to beat the Astros. And go on to either play in a World Series. Or in the case for the Dodgers to win a World Series. And to me it boils down to that Game 5 of the... World Series where Clayton Kershaw had that 4 nothing and 7-4 leads in the game. And we know Kershaw, although very spotty in his postseason career, but based on a lot of the stuff that had come out at that time during this investigation where, what was it, 36 sliders were passed by the Astro hitters throughout the course of the evening. And therefore, you could even look at that as them getting back in the game based on holding off on that wicked slider that Kershaw throws. And there's a lot of other factors that you could throw in there. And I understand too that the Dodgers could have had an opportunity to win that series. Whether it was early on in game two where Marwin Gonzalez hit a home run off of Kenley Jansen and won that game. And with all of the, whether it's monitors, buzzers, trash cans, all that happened at Minute Maid Park. So even with the Dodgers going back home down 3-2, they did win a game six but then lost the game seven. Thanks to you, Darvish, and how inept he was in that game, giving up home runs left and right. But for this to come up now, to me, makes no sense. If Rob Manfred goes off into the sunset and retires, and maybe a year or two after that says, you know what, guys, when I look back on what happened there in 2017, yes, it was not my best decision. All right, you want to have some distance from that, and I get it. This was six years ago, and the investigation, you got to remember, was 2020. So... We have to look at it from that scope that even though we are far removed from what took place in 2017, but does it really need to be brought up at this juncture? Seriously? And I understand it's a topic to be discussed and there were people killing Rob Manfred at that time, wondering why didn't he grant 
immunity to the Astros players. Well, you know, the reason, and I think the big reason, is that the Players Association would have stepped in and been like, "Uh uh-uh. And I'm sure that they worked out some deal to where the players couldn't have been touched. And as we know, there probably should have been a player or two that should have been suspended, maybe not for half a season, but maybe 30 games. Whomever it may be, we know that Alex Cora was a big part of that, as well as Carlos Beltran. But as we know, Beltran was not a player after that. In fact, he lost his job as a Met manager, as we know, when he got hired. And then when all this came out during this investigation, that Beltran and Cora were at the forefront to where Cora got suspended for a year. And then Beltran lost his job and he's now bounced around. And I believe he's even back in the Met organization as it is. But for the news to come out and to really rehash all this, and for the Dodger or even Yankee fan to get all ticked off. And do they have a right? Absolutely. When it's all said and done, we could argue whether or not. To me, it all boils down to that one game, the game five. I think it was critical. But in the ALCS, the Yankees couldn't hit a lick in those four games down in Houston. So even with the Astros winning all four games, and I understand that people could say, well, there's your advantage. But the Yankees didn't hit a lick in that series. I think they had four runs in the four games. Maybe it was three runs. I know they got shot out in game seven, and I believe they scored one run in each games, one, two, and six. So it's not as if they lost 11-10 the way the Dodgers did in game five in the World Series. And we all know that was a pivotal game five, 2-2. It was 2-1 going in. Or excuse me, it was 2-2 at the time. And let's say the Dodgers would have won that game. Who knows? They would have won the World Series. So I get people could gripe about that. And even with them... Losing a game seven the way they did with the home runs. I believe George Springer left the game in a home run. And then I believe somebody had a grand slam. If it wasn't Altuve. It was somebody else. But that was a while ago. But anyway, why this was brought up now to me was just asinine. I get it that he got a microphone in front of him. And somebody probably asked a question. Hey, what do you think about what took place there six years ago? And Manfred, in a moment, fessed up to it. So we had to dredge that whole story and what took place more than five years ago. But anyway, I just brought that up because to me, why? He couldn't have wait or he couldn't have just said or taken the high road or whatever it is. Like, come on, guys, we're really going to talk about this now. That's over and done with, blah, 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 water under the bridge, et cetera, et cetera. And the media could then spin it however they want to at that point. But thankfully, that's over and done with. We don't have to even delve further into that. But as far as baseball overall, on a whole, you had some big streaks snapped over the course of this week, heading into the weekend, whether you're the Cincinnati Reds who had a 12-game winning streak, where it was snapped by the Braves, and Ellie De La Cruz continues to not only electrify, but also light up the stat sheet as he hit for the cycle there, I believe it was on Friday night, in his 15th Major League Baseball game. I believe he's the third person, or third fastest, to start a career where he got a cycle in as many games. There was two other guys, and there were a bunch of no-names, if you ask me. So, kudos to him and what the Reds have done, and even Jody, Joey Votto has come back. The long-tenured Red, who hit a home run in his first game back and got a two-run single, and he's also been rejuvenated, knowing that, although they made it into the postseason during the pandemic, but the Reds, as we all know, have had just some lean years, some tough years, even the times that he did play in the postseason, whether it was get no hit by Roy Halladay in 2010, whether it was up 2-0 against the Giants where they had the next three games in their ballpark in Cincinnati and they get swept to where the Giants go off and win another World Series. So for Votto and the Reds in that region, good for them. And let's see if they can continue to do so because the Brewers, 
who have been tripping all over themselves throughout the course of this year, and they actually come to New York to play the Mets for four games starting tonight, weather permitting. And then on top of that, the Pirates have really hit an abutment. And as I talked about there last week, you can forget about them. They are now seven under 500, and they will not be heard from from the rest of this year. Although they did bring up Henry Davis, their 2021 first-round pick who hit a home run over the weekend in Miami, but they did lose three out of four. So the Pirates are skidding big time. But the Reds, as well as the Giants, who had a hot winning streak themselves, sweeping the Dodgers and doing well against the Padres, and now they look like they could be part of this wild card mix as we are closer to July and see where that may lie as we head deeper into the summer. But for those two teams, and the National League is wide open right now, not necessarily from the standpoint of any team from the National League could make it to a World Series, because we know Atlanta's a mainstay and they're going to be tough. You would think the Dodgers when it's all said and done, but they have really fallen on hard times. And then the Central, that's going to be a disaster, whomever comes out of that. So it could be wide open, although I think this could be Atlanta's league to lose at this point, considering the way they've been playing. But for what the Reds have done, what the Giants have done, obviously Arizona, the Diamondbacks, they've been playing very good ball here. And then to top it all off, the Miami Marlins, who continue to play well above 500 baseball, whether it's Yuri Perez, the young upstart, 20 years old, to where he's now thrown 21 consecutive scoreless innings, back-to-back performances where he struck out at least nine batters, and Luis Arias is still flirting with 400. Right now, I believe he's at 399. So you have very interesting storylines in the National League with teams that we would have thought by now would have been long gone as far as the playoff race or the wildcard picture is concerned. And as of right this second, they are in the middle of it and in the thick of it as we inch closer to the month of July. And as I stick with the National League, I get it. I got to talk about the Mets. And I'm sure for those who are first time or roughly new listeners to the podcast, I'm a big time Mets fan. And I said this going back to the MLB preview where I discussed two teams that could be major disappointments. Not only did I think this late here on June 26th, but just even disappointments out of the gate to, I would say, Memorial Day. But the Mariners, and I'll get to them in a little bit, but the Mets are now 35-42. and They have not won a series since the early part of the month when they swept the Phillies. They've been just stumbling, fumbling, bumbling. And yesterday, in a rubber game where they did win on Saturday after losing their Friday night, And Max Scherzer pitched very well there on Saturday. And I would have pushed Verlander up to pitch yesterday as opposed to him pitching tonight against Milwaukee. And I understand I get it. 40 years old, give him an extra day off, etc. Understood. But that was his pitch day. He did pitch Tuesday, his first game back in Houston since the time he signed with the Mets. And he didn't pitch bad, but he ended up losing 4-2 to Framber Valdez. And Valdez is 3-0 against the Mets in his three starts that he's pitched here over the last two years. By the way, I just want to throw that out there. But Verlander could have pitched yesterday, and which would have been a nice series for the Mets to now come into City Field. As I mentioned, they're going to play the Brewers, upcoming for four, and who knows, maybe they can avenge that sweep that they, an embarrassing sweep in Milwaukee in April. But for them to yesterday have a 6-3 lead, and not only have the error by Brett Beatty to start off the bottom of the eighth, but then the ballpark was walked by, huh, appropriately named Josh Walker, and then you bring in Jeff Brigham, and what does he do? Plunks Kyle Schwarber, plunks Trey Turner to where a 6-3 game, or I believe a 6-4, turns out to be a 
just out and out disaster. No, it was 6-3 because they scored four in the bottom of the eighth. And to think, they only had one hit in the inning and they scored four runs. And the Mets continue to not only find ways, but make up ways to lose games. And I'm starting to think that this season is going to be kaput. I'm ready to put this team out the pasture. And I don't even know how many games they are behind the sixth and final wildcard spot in the National League. But by the time we get to the All-Star break, it may be too late. Who knows, by the time we get to next week, before the 4th of July, it may be over. And this team just continues to just screw up so many ways during the week and twice on Sunday. And that's what you saw there yesterday in Philadelphia as the Phillies win a series against the Mets and plummet seven games below 500. As they are just what? Three games away or two games away from hitting the halfway mark of this Major League Baseball season. Can't make it up. And I'm sure I'm missing a few other things. I know Showalter finally got tossed there yesterday in the ninth inning. I don't know what he argued. But having to watch that disaster, he should have been tossed out of games quite earlier, if you ask me. And even in the middle of the week, the Mets traded Eduardo Escobar to the Angels. And good guy, locker room guy. If you see any of the Mets social media posts, he's a fun, loving type of guy, well-respected, etc. But they had to do it. And they brought two pitching prospects back. One who hasn't pitched since April, although put up good numbers. And a one, Coleman Crow, but... Those are double-A guys. Let's see what they could do once they get to a major league level. And who knows? We may see them a lot sooner than expected considering the way this team has performed here for the first three months of the season. But Escobar gone. That means Beatty's going to be your mainstay there at third. And good. Let the kids grow. He's going to be your third baseman in the future. And why fool around as the Angels needed the third baseman considering Anthony Rendon, who hasn't played since he signed that contract after that World Series against the... Astros, and then you had Gio Urshela, who's going to be out for the remainder of the year with a broken pelvis, so they needed a third baseman in the worst way, and sure enough, the Mets ship him out to Anaheim, and they get a couple of prospects back. But with the National League, that's what I have there, and as far as the American League is concerned, the Rays are the only team that have played the exact amount of games to reach the halfway point of the season, and on this pace, they're going to go 108-54, and which is not too shabby, considering that the Big Red Machine of the 76 version Cincinnati Reds and the 86 Mets also won 108 games. So that may bode well for a Tampa team to see whether or not they could follow upon that same trajectory of two National League behemoths of decades past. But for the Rays, and they had a little bit of drama there with Wanda Franco having to be benched, I believe some conduct detrimental to the team. So who knows if that's going to be something that will pop up along the rest of the way. Hopefully he'll get his act straight. And Franco is really underachieved when I take a look at what he's done this year. A guy who got paid 200 some odd million dollars prior to the beginning of last year. And a guy that, of course, the organization is going to bank on moving forward as the face of the Tampa Bay Rays. But when I take a look at what they've done here, and they actually play the Diamondbacks, which is an interesting series. They're going to... Arizona to play the first place D-backs. So that's an interesting first place matchup. Very under the radar when you think about it. But Wanda Franco this year, for a guy who has been injured, I'll start there, and a guy who has not really been what we thought he'd be so far this early portion of his career. All right, he's batting 287, nine homers, 36 RBIs, and 74 games played. Not great. Not terrible. But for a guy who is supposed to be a generational type player 
And for Tampa to sign him to that big box, you would think you would have had better production than what we've seen so far. And I get he's a young player. What is he, 21? He hasn't even cracked 22. So he's still not only growing into his game, but not really maturing as we've seen with the recent exploits and him having to be disciplined by the team. But all right, we'll give him a little break there. Not necessarily what he did with the team, but just him trying to grow into his game. But you would think, considering what other big stars in the game, whether your name is Ronald Acuna Jr. or even a guy like Fernando Tatis Jr., injuries and suspensions aside, but the guys put up big numbers. And Franco, we have not seen that just yet. And he has a little bit of hot dog in him on top of that. But you have Tampa as well as Shane McClanahan. Let me mention him real quick. Who had to leave his start, I believe on Saturday, with back tightness. He said he'd make his next start, but backs, as we all know, could be cranky. And McClanahan is your early Cy Young Award favorite in the American League. So that's one thing you can pay attention to as the Orioles are just two in the loss. That's right. You may look at the standings and say that the Rays have a four and a half game lead, which they do. But two in the loss is big because that's where the barometer comes to when even if you have a lead as sizable or at least as comfortable as the Rays have right now, but we have to look at the games in the loss column and with the Orioles 47-29 and and how many games? They actually have five games in hand. So that's the difference there when you think about it, considering four and a half. But we shall see how Tampa does. Orioles, as we've talked about, have been phenomenal throughout the first half of the season. Yankees got themselves back on the beam a little bit with the two games against the Rangers, but they haven't really seemed to find their footing. Josh Donaldson is griping about playing time, but even hinted at retirement based on the injuries, his age, last year of his contract. Aaron Judge, who knows when we're going to see him based on that catch that he made in right field at Dodger Stadium where his toe hit the concrete there and found out that we have ligament damage in that toe. It still hasn't healed 100%. Even judges said that it's frustrating because it's not like it's a hamstring where we could have a timetable. It's a ligament in a toe. So who knows when you're going to see the reigning MVP back in the Yankee lineup, but you think the Yankees will still be fine. Garrett Cole has pitched well here and has carried him throughout the first half of this season where Domingo Herman has been awful. Clark Schmidt has been up and down. He have not gotten a lot of good performances. On top of Carlos Rodon, their import that they brought in from San Francisco, the high-priced free agent, has not even told the rubber in a game this year, but he's supposedly coming along. Who knows if we're going to see him until after the All-Star break, but I'm sure the Yankee fans are waiting with bated breath upon his return to see if he could add some life and inject some confidence because we all know the Yankees are going to need him come October, and that's where he's going to really make his money when it's all said and done. So you have that going on, as well as Toronto still playing pretty well and hanging in there, just the half game behind the Yankees. The Central, we can even forget about it because it's similar to the National League Central where the Twins are one game over 500 in first place and the Guardians are one game behind the loss. And that's just a disaster of a division, similar, like I mentioned, to the counterpart in the NL. And then out West, Texas, although losing the back two to the Yankees over the weekend, have a six-game lead over the Astros in the division. The Angels are just a game behind, or really a half game when you think about it, game in the loss behind the Astros. But Seattle's been the other disappointment to where they have not been able to get their footing. They have just been putrid overall. They came out west and lost, excuse me, they came out east and lost four out of six to the Yankees and to the Orioles, which I understand 
Those are formidable opponents, but the Mariners, for everything that they've done last year, winning the wild card round, making it into the division series before getting swept by Houston, and a lot of expectations coming into this year, and they have fallen flat on their face. So those are the teams that I mentioned. Seattle and the Mets have just been major disappointments so far this season, and it has been shown by the way they played here from the end of March here to the end of June. And that's what you have with baseball. As we move it along, I lace up my high tops and get myself out in the hardwood to discuss some NBA. And before I even get to the draft, and there really isn't much to delve into there, I know we could talk about Wembenyama and San Antonio, him being comfortable there. And it's just heaven considering that he's also going to be under the tutelage of Tim Duncan, David Robinson, Manu Ginobili, of course the coach Greg Popovich. So he has the best landing spot. And as I talked about there, you have to go back in the archives there a couple of months ago when the draft lottery took place and how I was just disgusted knowing that San Antonio got themselves another big man going back to the 97 draft with Tim Duncan. So if you want to go back in the archives just a couple of months, listen to that because that's some that you may be spitting up your milk or hopefully you won't drive off the road or fall off of the treadmill, but you'll get a kick out of what I had to say about that. But when... We talked about the past week, and there were some big trades. We talked about Bradley Beal there last week, and I thought that that was a bad trade for Phoenix. Not only just with the money, but Beal, a guy that is going to contribute, and I'm sure that he's going to be a guy that's going to have his moments, but I don't see Phoenix all of a sudden becoming a Western Conference finalist for the NBA Finals next year based on this trade. Not only do I not like it fiscally, but even from a standpoint of him having the same position as Devin Booker, and to me, Booker is better than Beal, so I won't go down that road. You can just go back to last week's podcast at this time to get the full analysis on that. But the two other big trades of the past week, and you know I have to start off with Chris Porzingis and how that deal unfolded, and I was shocked to read that. My son was sending me texts left and right about Porzingis. How do you feel about him becoming a Celtic? And at first, there was a little trepidation, but then I looked at the money, the contract, and the year he had last year, not that I was watching Wizards games left and right throughout the course of the last NBA season, but when it's all said and done, Brad Stevens, as shrewd as he's been as an executive, boy, he deserves all the credit on this. Because what the Celtics pulled off was not only getting Porzingis in the deal, where he has, I believe, one more year at $33 million dollars, And then based on what he does next year, who knows? They're going to have to fork over some big-time money. And as we all know, Jalen Brown is up for that big-time Supermax extension, $295 million this year. You're going to have to pay Jason Tatum an upwards of $300 million as of next year. And then if Porzingis has anything close to an all-star year, the Celtics may have to re-up with him considering what he may do this upcoming season. But as far as the trade goes, Porzingis, three-way deal, Coming to Boston where you had Marcus Smart going to Memphis. Memphis sends the Celtics their first round pick, which is 25th overall. And then the Celtics flipped it for a million other picks. And then you had Mike Muscala as well as Danilo Gallinari. And sorry for him to leave because he bought in on his player option to want to be a Celtic. And then he gets traded to Washington. And then Memphis sends Tyus Edney to Washington as well. So it was a big giant deal. And I'm going to start with Porzingis before I get to Marcus Smart. To me, Porzingis, he can be that guy, not only 
offensively to spell whether it would be, and he's going to be a starter when it's all said and done, but he could play the five. We know he's the unicorn, as Kevin Durant said once upon a time. But when we look at this trade, to me, it's twofold. A, it's his health. How healthy he's going to be is going to be monumental because he's going to need to play the 65 games he did last year where he scored 23 points, 8 rebounds, X amount of blocks, etc. He's going to have to play a significant amount. And to me, I would sign for 65 right now. So his health is number one. And number two, and to me, this is even bigger. What is in his chest and what is between his ears? Because at the end of the day, that's what it's going to be. And I would think, knowing that he's going to play for a big-time contract, that he has an opportunity to play on a championship-winning team, that yes, he's going to have to defer to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, but because of his size and because of his skill, that he has an opportunity to really expand his game, not only just from an offensive standpoint, but defensive as well. And here's the thing. Because Joe Mazzula, the coach, is more of an offensive-minded coach, I wonder if that's going to detract him from his defensive exploits and I'm not trying to make him out to be Bill Russell but guess what with Robert Williams and his defensive presence but also with his injury history but if you have two guys like that to play the low block where you can have Porzingis at the five or even at the four for that matter and could play that type of defensive basketball then somehow some way Missoula is going to have to incorporate that to make him that two-way player Because the Celtics, if they think they're going to outscore everybody 131 to 126, which for the most part they do in the regular season. But how did that look in the seven-game series against the Miami Heat? And yes, I understand they were down 0-3 and it came back. I I get it. But how many points did they score in game seven in their building? Yes. I don't even think they cracked 90. Off the top of my head, I don't remember. I think it was 101-82. And yes, you could say... Jason Tatum was compromised with the ankle that he rolled on the first possession of the game. I get it. All of it. But to me, this is where Missoula is going to really have to be in the lab and deploy an offense to where it's going to work not only for the team, but also for Brzingis. And also to incorporate whatever defensive capability that he has so we could get the most out of him. Because without that, The Celtics, yeah, they're going to outscore everybody. They're going to run and gun. They're going to beat up on the Charlottes of the world and all the bad teams. And yes, they'll be in a lot of these games and so on and so forth. But as we've seen in this postseason down the stretch where they had no or very little offensive sets to run, whether it was, oh, let's just chuck up threes with 18 seconds left on the shot clock or let's just dribble it out with eight seconds and, oh, let's see if we can come up with a play then. Ah, that's not going to work. So Missoula better be sleeves rolled up in front of his laptop drawing up plays or doing something with the new coaching staff, Sam Cassell, Charles Lee, etc. Because that's not going to fly come May and June next year when you have Porzingis, who could be, not saying he is, but could be that final piece to a championship puzzle. And then with Smart being traded, I know it was tough. Nine years with the team. Heart and soul, blood and guts to a certain extent. Defensive player of the year last year. But they had to do something. And they weren't going to trade Tatum. And they weren't going to trade Brown. So unfortunately, the guy that was going to be, not to say he was the fall guy by any stretch, but the guy that was going to be on the outs was going to be smart. Because how much more are you going to get out of a guy who's taken a million charges over the career, who's also plays not only with a good IQ, especially defensively, but is going to get those 50-50 balls. He's going to lay his body out on the line. And with him being 30 years old and not getting any better, 
I'm not upset, mad, disappointed that the Celtics made this trade. And that's not an indictment on Smart by any stretch. But you know what? It's time. They had to do something. And their something was to have to trade Smart in order to get a guy like Porzingis back. And in the process, they got a number one pick. But as I said, from Memphis, but... That got flipped for the 31st pick overall, and then they flipped that for a second-round pick. Oh, so it was a disaster from that regard. But, be that as it may, Smart, no longer part of the team. He's going to be missed beyond you could ever imagine because a lot of the players, they respected him and obviously loved him. And I know that that's going to be that first game back in Boston as a member, as a member of the Memphis Grizzlies. That's going to be a teary one, to say the least. But you know what? I applaud the deal. It was a great move by Stevens, but now let's see if Porzingis could say healthy and what is in that chest of his to see whether or not he's got the, let's just call it as we see it, the cojones to gut out these games and be a part of some basketball that it's going to come down to, especially in next spring, where it's going to come down to those final few minutes and how he's going to be a part of that is going to be huge. And, of course, how he plays and executes. And then the other deal is Chris Paul, where he was part of that Bradley Beal trade, but then the Warriors, and who knows what happened there throughout the course of this season, dating back to the fight between Jordan Poole and Draymond Green. And I think there's a bit of a reach to bring in Chris Paul, and I understand he's not going to be there to do much. He's going to come off the bench to spell Steph Curry. And whatever he's going to give is going to be quite all right. And I watched an interview with Chris Paul last week on one of my favorite podcasts. And I'm, this is a shameless plug and not that I have anything to gain from it. But Rich Roll, like Tootsie Roll, he was on his podcast, the Rich Roll podcast last Monday. And it's a different podcast. So if you think they're going to talk about his exploits throughout the course of his career or even his foibles in the postseason and him not winning the title two years ago, it's not that type of podcast. It's more about grit It's more about perseverance. It's more about, it's a bunch of different things, but it's very good. And I respect him as a player, but I even respect him even more based on what I heard there. But with that being said, I'm sure he's coming into the twilight of his career knowing that, all right, I may be ring chasing. And I don't know if Golden State, if that's where he wanted to go when it was all said and done. But with Poole coming east and him going west, I would think it's going to be a good fit on a veteran-laden team, which now Poole, with him gone, I think the... Warriors are going to bring back Draymond Green. Now, I don't know what Green wants. I don't know if he's going to get that discount that the team would want to offer him. But who knows? Maybe they want to run it back one more time and have CP3 in the mix. That's going to be my way of thinking. And not to say that Poole was the reason why that the Warriors did not play well throughout the course of the year and then lost in the second round to the Lakers. Although that questionable shot in game one that he chucked there at the end, which was uh, against the Lakers... That's one that I'm sure may have all of the Bay Area scratching their heads still to this day. But I think that was another very shrewd move by the Warrior Brass for them to bring in Paul, which is a bit of a risk because your your team is now even a little bit older, not as young, where you got a guy like Poole, who obviously is is in his early 20s. And then for Draymond Green, if he does come back, I think this could be one last go-around this coming year, especially with Paul on board to see what he could do to spell Steph Curry at times or if Steph Curry, and we understand that he's had his injuries throughout the course of his career, that's a good insurance policy to have. Although, 
Chris Paul has had his own maladies when it comes to him having to be in the trainer's room getting fixed up for knees, for hamstrings, and things of that nature. So, I just wanted to throw that out there. And Washington, obviously, with all the moves that they made, they're rebuilding. Kyle Cruz is going to be gone. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of rumors swirling around him as we approach the weekend. And we'll see how the rumor mill will come about there as we get closer to the podcast on Thursday, which, of course, I'll be back on as we inch closer to free agency. As far as the draft... I was a little surprised by Charlotte picking Brandon Miller. I thought maybe they would choose Scoot Henderson. And as we all know, they have LaMelo Ball there. But thinking that, do they want to give a max contract to LaMelo Ball and maybe flip Ball and bring in Henderson? But they chose Brandon Miller as their second selection, the kid out of Alabama. Scoot Henderson now goes to Portland and talked about how he looks forward to meeting Damian Lillard and seeing if they could work. A good backcourt, it will be a small one, and who knows if Lillard is going to be a part of the team, but that is obviously for somewhere in the future. You had the two Thompson twins, and it's funny, I think about the old New Wave group back in the 80s, the Thompson twins drafted back-to-back there by Houston and Detroit, Amen and Osar, and as I go down the first round, the only other names that really stick out for me is Jordan Hawkins, the champ there at UConn. Goes to New Orleans. You also had Jaime Jaquez from UCLA, who was a top squad there throughout the course of the season, falling to Miami. And I think that's a very good pick. He is a Miami Heat prototype player where he's going to play defense. You would only hope he comes into the shape that the standard is set by the Miami Heat, but you would think he's going to do so. His favorite player is Jimmy Butler. So I'm sure he's going to be in his ear, or I would say pretty much tethered to him throughout the course of training camp to get as much knowledge and soak in all that experience that Butler has gotten throughout the course of his, what, 11, 12-year seasons here in the NBA. So that's one that you also have to keep in mind. I know the Nets had back-to-back picks, 21 and 22. Noah Clowney, as well as Derek Whitehead, both from big schools, Alabama and Duke. Who knows what that's going to do for a net team that's coming out of the Kyrie, KD, even to a certain extent, James Harden disaster. And then when we get to the second round, the one name that really sticks out here, and I understand there may be a couple others, but the one that you really truly have to admire, obviously Andre Jackson is the one that sticks out, him playing on UConn. He gets drafted, but then, although Orlando did select him, but he did get traded. So he had bounced around and is now a member of the Milwaukee Bucks. I like that you have a guy who just came off of winning a national title, going to a team that still has championship pieces intact, although Chris Middleton had opted out of his final year, but who knows, there may be some rumblings that they could resign him. I don't know if that's going to be on a lesser contract, but even with Middleton out, you still have obviously Giannis, Drew Holiday, some cast of characters that are hanging around there, the Bobby Portises of the world, etc. But for the one name that really stuck out to me when I looked at this draft, you have to look at Keontae Johnson. Here was a guy that at Florida collapsed there on the court. You had to really just tough it out to hope that this kid was going to be okay considering he had a heart condition and who knows if he was going to come out of it. And as it was, he did come out of it. And although transferred from Florida to Kansas State, but he does get drafted in the second round by the Oklahoma City Thunder. So when you take a look at that, not only a huge sigh of relief, but for the kid to get drafted there in the second round and maybe get a chance to play in the league, Kudos to you. 
Keontae for getting drafted by Oklahoma City. And we all know they have a ton of young players, a plethora of picks. So let's see. It's going to be a healthy competition there down at OKC. Isaiah Wong, kid who got drafted there, point guard out of Miami, goes to the Pacers. Jalen Clark, another UCLA kid, goes to Minnesota. Other than that, a lot of these teams, Jalen Wilson, Kansas, I know when you talk about some of these big schools, goes to the Nets. But way too early to tell on who's the winners and losers. I really don't like to go that route when it comes to whether it's the NFL draft or even baseball and the NHL to a lesser degree. But that's what you have there in the NBA. We'll continue to monitor as we go deeper into the summer. I know Summer League people, including my brother Justin, he gets crazy for that, which I believe starts July 7th and goes through the 17th. So we'll see how some of these players will fare as they will make their way out to Las Vegas and other parts of the country for Summer League. Now let me transition and go to the National Hockey League real quick because the NHL will have their draft tomorrow. And Thursday, the first round tomorrow, and then rounds two through seven there on Thursday. And I believe it's going to be broadcast on ESPN, which they're trying to jump on the bandwagon with all these other sports, mainly the NBA and NFL, but they're not going to rival that by any stretch. As we know, even Major League Baseball, I know they try to make that the setting leading into the All-Star week, where I believe the draft last year, wasn't it on a Sunday Right after the All-Stars future game, which is held in the ballpark, this year will be in Seattle. But for the National Hockey League, you're going to have a player drafted by the Chicago Blackhawks where a lot of people could think he is the next big thing. And considering just eight years ago, and it might as well be eight decades ago, considering these generational picks usually comes out once every 15, 20 years. And when Connor McDavid came out and we see what he's done, Throughout the course of his career, he's going to win another MVP this year on top of the one he won last year and just the wondrous talent that he is. Well, there's going to be another Connor on the scene and his name is Connor Bedard, guy who played 57 games, had what, 71 goals, 79 assists, 150 points in, like I said, 57 games. So he almost averaged three points a game in his final year in Regina out in the Western Hockey League. That is a name that a lot of people are going to focus in on and he's not even 18 yet. In fact, he won't turn 18 until next month. And the Blackhawks, after the great decade that was in the 20-teens, winning three Stanley Cups, and now falling on hard times to the point where Joel Quenville, who coached those aforementioned Cup teams, we all know he's been long gone. And then with Patrick Kane being traded to the Rangers and Jonathan Taze in and out of the lineup with the condition that looked like it wasn't going to heal, but he did play toward the end of last year and looks like he's going to be offered to retirement. Now the Blackhawks struck gold by, they haven't drafted him yet, but you know he's going to be the number one pick, which made me think back to yesteryear. And once upon a time in the 92 draft, you had two players coming out in each the NBA and NHL to big time fanfare, big time hoopla, a lot of hype where you had a kid out of LSU in a one Shaquille O'Neal knew that he could have been that next big man of the 90s even into the 2000s and then that same year the NHL was looking at a power forward out of Oshawa that they haven't seen the likes of since Cam Neely and maybe even bigger and better a right-handed shot in a one Eric Lindros And we understand Lindros, who the Quebec Nordiques had his rights and didn't want to go to Quebec for any way, shape, or form, got traded to Philadelphia. And we know how that trade 
turned out, where the big guy in that puzzle or that trade that took place where the rights to Lindros went from Quebec to Philadelphia was a guy named Peter Forsberg. And yes, you had a few other guys in there that were mainstays on defense. Steve Duchesne, Kerry Huffman. They also had Chris Simon, the tough guy, was part of that trade. But Peter Forsberg was the big guy. Lindros, who did become an MVP and also went to a Stanley Cup final in 97 when they lost to the Red Wings and had a very good career, but was just marred by concussions. The one hit that everybody remembers, that Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals between the Devils and Flyers in 2000, where Scott Stevens just leveled him. Stevens, as we all know, one of the great defensemen, stay at home, physical, rugged, and just put him on his ass. And Lindros was never the same player after that. And Lindros was built like a tank. I mean, think about this. You could arguably say that before Alexander Ovechkin, there was Eric Lindros. That's the type of size, speed, punishing hits that he gave, physicality, scoring, everything. He was that same type of player. And when I think back to both Lindros and Shaq, you fast forward to today where you can have two of those generational players come out of this draft in a one Victor Wembanyama and now Connor Bedard. So it's just something to keep in mind as we move forward because since then, I can't recall a draft. Even when LeBron James came out in 2003, I couldn't even tell you who the number one pick was that year. So that goes to show how the NHL, it doesn't really have that type of impact. And if I look it up, as I will, just to see who was, as I didn't do a little homework there, so my apologies. But for these two players who are going to come out now, it just made me think back to 31 years ago, which is unbelievable to think it's been that long, to where you had two guys in each of their sports become pretty much the future face of their leagues, although Shaq turned out to be Hall of Famer, dominant as we all know, and Lindros was on his way to being that, but obviously came nowhere near all the hype and the hoopla, as I mentioned, to when he came out a junior there back in that 92 season. And look at that, the number one pick in 2003... It wasn't even a position player, defenseman, uh, it was Mark andre Fleury. Very good career, borderline Hall of Famer, but is he Patrick Waugh? Is he Martin Brodeur? Is he Terry Shawchuk? Ken Dryden? Jacques Plante? Any of those guys? I think not. And as far as the draft overall with some of these prospects, I couldn't even tell you. And that's one of the things, again, when we talk about drafts, the NHL does not have that type of panache, doesn't even resonate the way it should like the other sports, but that's just how it is. Some names that you got to just keep in mind, Adam Fantilli, who's a guy who probably picked number two overall right after Bedard, Leo Carlson, another center who following Fantilli, who's also a center as well. And of course, with Connor Bedard, all centers here that we're talking about, those are names to keep an eye on. Wingers, Matvey Michkov, kid that played in the KHL last year, is a guy that you may want to keep an eye out for. Ryan Leonard, another winger. As far as defenseman, David Reinbacher, kid out of Switzerland. So those are some names that we'll talk about there on Thursday because the first round again will take place Wednesday and we'll reconnect and go over what's going to happen there in that first round, which will be no surprise there at the top, but maybe some of the other picks will share. As far as the Islanders, the local teams, where they'll pick, I'll discuss that then. And we'll certainly chew on that. 
when we get to Thursday's pod. And then lastly, I just want to talk a couple of NFL things. Tyree Kill, is this something that the NFL is going to have to wonder about? Knowing that last week he was allegedly charged for an assault at a Miami Beach marina where he slapped an employee in the back of the head. Now, I don't know if that was supposed to be playful, if that was something that was just maybe a little bit more than what it was. Maybe it was a little bit too assertive to where maybe somebody called the cops and there was a scene. And even the person that was involved didn't even press charges. So maybe it's much to do about nothing. But when it comes to the conduct policy of the league, who knows if he's going to face any time? Would he face a game or two because of this where he should know better? And even though he wasn't charged, and I get it, he didn't have to spend any time in jail, but the optic, A, and then B, because of his track record of assault in the past, in particular with his kid's mom, which I won't go into any type of sort of details, but who knows if that may register down the road with the NFL to where he may have to be suspended for a game, whether he does or doesn't, or maybe gets fined, that we'll have to wait and see, but I just figured to put that on your guys and gals' radar for if and when they'll crack down on that particular peccadillo. And then the other thing I want to bring up is Clark Hagens. Now you may say, Clark who? Clark Hunt from the Kansas City Chiefs, the vice president, chairman, etc. No, no, no. Clark Hagens was an outside linebacker who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers back in the mid-2000s. And in fact, he was drafted in the year 2000 out of Colorado State, the same school that drafted Joey Porter just the year before as they were both teammates on that team, well, Hagens died midweek last week at the age of 46. Now, the result of his death is unknown at the moment, so no details have come out about that. But for him, who had a good career as a Steeler, I believe, what did he have? Somewhere in the vicinity of 30 to 35 sacks for his career. That 2005 season to where they went to a Super Bowl, I believe he had nine sacks total, but he did bounce around after that. Most known going to Arizona to play for the Cardinals. Was on that first Super Bowl team. Was not on the second one. And for Higgins to die so young. Unbelievable. And who knows what it's from. And who knows if the family is going to donate the brain to CTE. Again, the details of the death has not been revealed. So who knows if this was self-inflicted. Or we do not know. And I only bring it up because... He was part of a play in that Super Bowl against the Seahawks where obviously it gets overlooked and forgotten because it was a very anticlimactic Super Bowl, especially for a Steeler fan that I am because that was their run as a six seed, winning in Cincinnati, upsetting Indianapolis in Indianapolis as a one seed, and then beating Denver in Denver, which has become a house of horrors for Pittsburgh over the years, regular season or postseason, but in particular the playoffs, and they finally got over that hump. I understand Jake Plummer was their quarterback, not John Elway. But for them to win that Super Bowl, which again, they won on three plays and not to rehash that, but he was part of that one play at 14-10 where Matt Hasselbeck threw a touchdown pass but was called back for a hold. And I thought there was some holding on that play. If you have it on tape or on DVD and you want to go back and look, Higgins was the person that was held on that play to where the call, obviously the holding nullified that. And then on the next play, Hasselbeck throws an interception to Ike Taylor deep near the goal line and where it was taken back about 20, 30 yards. And that changed the complexion of the whole game. 
Because if the Steelers were going to be down three, and that was, I believe, late third quarter with about a minute 40 to go, if they were down three after that touchdown, and with Roethlisberger playing the way he did in that game, which was probably the worst, not probably, it was definitely the worst quarterback performance by a winning team in Super Bowl history. Nine for 21, two interceptions, and one in the red zone, I might add. And who knows how that game would have turned out. Maybe the Seahawks would have won, and I understand that call was questionable. And to be objective, I thought there was a hold there. It wasn't egregious, and it wasn't obvious, but it was borderline. I'll say that that, but Hagens was part of that play, which has been remembered, I'm sure, in the Pacific Northwest by all the Seattle Seahawks fans. But Clark, thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to you, the Steeler family, NFL, etc. I get it, he wasn't anywhere near a Hall of Fame or all-time great, but because of that Super Bowl and that play, and I just thought to bring him up, so... Clark, may you rest in peace, my guy. And one more time, thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to his family and the entire NFL as well. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about in the books. As always, as I wrap up, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for partaking. I know I took my few days off in the Caribbean, which was well needed, but now I'm back on the scene, ready to close out the month in grand style as we get into the second part of the year. And your boy has a lot of big things in store, a lot of things I'm working behind the scenes, and make sure you keep yourself attuned to all of my social media feeds, as well as the website, jreels.com, as I keep you abreast on all that's happening with the podcast, all that's happening in sports, and you could do so by going to the following on YouTube, at jreels, which I post daily, although during the trip I didn't, but definitely you want to keep your eyes glued to YouTube, one more time, at jreels, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast. Twitter, J Reels One, just a number. If you want to hit me up with any questions or comments, you could do so by going to the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. One more time, your participation is never taken for granted. Just taking the time out to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's happening in the world of sports. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast. That's just going to increase the visibility of the podcast with all those who aren't familiar with it. So throw me a few stars, write a review, please. I would thank you from the bottom of my heart. And if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy.com slash the J Reels Podcast. I know I've neglected that page. Oh boy, it's collecting dust. But I'll start posting on there as we get into July, as I want to try to generate more interest on that platform, exclusive content for you guys and gals, because that's a content where your hard earned money will go to yours truly, and in turn will go 100% to this endeavor, the upkeep of the website. The equipment, anything to make this experience into the microphone through your earbuds, headphones, or speakers that much more pleasurable, enjoyable, entertaining, and informative because whether you do or do not know. This is what I love to do, people. This is what I love to talk about. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA, as I like to say, with nothing but passion, fire, fury, energy to share my thoughts, opinions, analysis, critique, praise, feelings on anything and everything. That happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. And one last shout out, Emerita, Michael, thank you so much for taking care of our little pup, Kismet, over the last six days. Thank you twice, more than once, and beyond. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>